HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hi, this is Marion Nessel. I'm the Paulette Goddard Professor of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at New York University and a longtime fan of Heritage Radio. Like Marion, you too can support Heritage Radio Network, a member-based nonprofit radio station operating out of Bushwick, Brooklyn. I've been on it countless times. I love being interviewed. The interviewers are always really well prepared and fun to talk to about the issues that matter to me the most, uh, about how we can change our food system to one that's healthier for people and the environment. It's just invaluable to have an independent radio station that's dealing with these issues. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful asset. Support Heritage Radio Network by becoming a member today. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart to donate. Today's program is brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of In the Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Severin, this is Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers by young farmers. And today I'm talking to Nels Veliquet. I love your name. It's like a rock star name. And Nels has um, got some different roles, but among them is that he's a, he's a mead maker. And welcome to the show, Nels. Thanks, Severin. Thank you very much. Um, do you want to give yourself a little introduction for our listeners, what you're up to? And... Um, Maybe just a short introduction to what is mead? Yeah. Uh, mead is one of the oldest alcoholic beverages, and you'll see it much more now penetrating the craft beverage scene uh, as cider has gained a lot of popularity recently. Of course, sort of uh, on the backs of the craft beer movement that's been going on for about 15 years in the U.S. And essentially what it is is it's uh, honey with water, 
uh, yeast added, and bang, there's your mead. Now you can put just about anything that you want into it, spices or fruits. So it really lends itself to an experimental uh, sort of nature, I suppose. And it is uh, it is something that you'll probably see more and more of just because uh, it hasn't been around for a while. But there are several really good uh, producers of it across the country, whether you live on the West Coast, the East Coast, or in the Midwest. Um, and it's just been a passion of mine for about 20-some-odd years since uh, that's actually what got me into keeping bees. So just to review, meat is a fermentation. It's a fermented product. And I think it's traditional in Ethiopian cuisine. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. Uh, pretty much every culture around the world has some sort of affiliation with a honey, a honey-based fermented beverage. Uh, Ethiopia has a, a, an actual commercial uh, production right now, and their traditional beverage is called Tej. Um, but, uh, yeah, pretty much anywhere in the world that there have been people or bees, which pretty much means anywhere, um, people have figured out that uh, even just adding a little bit of water to it and leaving it out uh, turns it into something that uh, gives them pleasure. So uh, it is a it, it's a really interesting historical beverage. And what I've noticed uh, over the years, especially being a beekeeper as well, is that people are fascinated with the relationship with bees, and people are really interested in the history of their beverages. We see a lot of that now in the craft movement, and most of that is just, you know, understanding and being closer to the product. And that, that's not exclusive, obviously, to beverages. Um, that's one of the reasons why we see so many people interested in different types of foods and, and animal husbandry these days as well. So compared to, say, beer, compared to beer or wine, um, how long of a fermentation period does the meat under, undergo? It's more like wine. And in the U.S., if you want a commercial production license, that's the type of license that you would get, would be a winemaking license. It's typically a six-month to one-year project, depending on how uh, strong you'd like to make it. Now, there are uh, some mead makers that are experimenting with faster forms of fermentation, uh, trying to get it closer to a beer or a cider where they can turn it around within uh, one month. Uh, but, the, you know, that, that's sort of the, the ongoing edge of the research. Most of the time, it's, it's a wine-style product. So um, you got into making mead, and then you got into keeping bees, and it sounds like you're having some um, strategy aspect to your life. Um, are these – is that a related – is that a related emergence, or um, what is the connection there? Uh, well, <laughs> I, I don't know if I, I don't know if I would go so far as to say that I have any sort of plan, uh, and I and I certainly would not recommend that to anyone who might be listening today, because the world is an ever-changing place, and you know, for me, it really has been. Uh, a labor of love. I started doing it when I was young because I was interested in uh, how alcohol was formed, and I was a history buff. And it really drew me. I needed honey, so it drew me into more of the bees. 
Um, I grew up in a very large fruit growing operation with a lot of cherries. And so I was familiar with bees and we used bees for pollination, but I had, it had always been peripheral to me. It had not been something that I was particularly interested in. So just like a lot of things, as my interest in the mead developed and my interest in bees developed and my interest in just general apiary husbandry, you know, the, the tending of the bees uh, pushed me into more and more contact with other people that wanted to know about bees, wanted to know about bees to add to beer, wanted to know about bees on their cider farms. And so as, as that aspect of my personal life, you know, my own hobby, I became more and more knowledgeable about the stuff that I had learned through business, either through practical experience like marketing or logistics and my practical education at the school uh, with finance and administration really began to, you know, what I saw were people starting these new businesses and like most passionate people, and I have, I have dallied very closely many times with professionalizing my hobby, um, that's what people do, whether it's knowing how to smoke a, a ham or knowing how to grow asparagus or knowing how to make beer. Generally, creative class people, they, they have a passion, and that's what they know how to do. But today, the business environment is such that uh, you really have to be multifaceted in your skill set, or you have to have mentors. You have to have people that are willing to help you with that. So I had a lot of uh, acquaintances and friends that were getting into these kind of businesses, and through my practical work experience, I had had a lot of government and bureaucratic interface experience. And I, again, through just professional hard knocks, found out how to deal with getting a permit, how to deal with uh, your local zoning boards. And what I discovered sitting through endless hours of meetings and committees and things like that was that there is definitely a way to navigate that system and that there was value in being able to translate my experience for other people. Because what I saw a few times was that uh, the first one that I really noticed that I was a, f a friend wanted to start a bakery and was, was talking about the concessions that were being asked by their local zoning board for a lot of things that they really weren't that interested in, like parking spaces and semi-permeable surfaces and all the stuff that comes up as a business owner just getting the physical space ready. And I just said, you know, that sounds really weird because I was just working in this similar municipality and I don't think that, I don't think they're, what they're telling you is correct, which was a shock uh, to my friend who said, well, how could they know? How could they not know what the rules are? And I guess this is one of those practical pieces of advice I would dispense in the interview, which is don't ever assume that the people that are asking you to prove your concept even know their own rules. It's worth reading up on whatever it is that you're looking to do, whether it's a permit to produce alcohol, a permit to put up a building, or what the local land regulations are, because it, it's not something that you normally think about, but it is something that can definitely take time away from your creative energy that goes into your business. So, so what you're saying is don't go to the meeting not knowing what your rights are. Exactly. Be informed. And you either do that through the use of a consultant, which is which is sort of that was the long way for me to talk about how I started becoming a 
agricultural or value-added consultant, which I would not recommend. It's not a steady paycheck, uh, but it is a, it is a, a very interesting and engaging work that I do because, yeah, you you have to know it or you have to be willing, and I guess this is my other piece of advice, you have to be willing to go to people that know more than you do, and whether or not you take their advice uh, or leave it, at least you have it for perspective uh, in hindsight. You know, you can always say later, wow, I really should have listened to Nels, or man, I'm glad I didn't listen to Nels. But it's it's definitely worth you know getting insight from people that have experience. And it's I think it's been a valuable service, and it makes a big difference when you go in and you understand what the rules are when you start to play. Well, another thing to consider for the new entrepreneurs is that there's often retired business people who, especially in, you know, foodie types of places, are have many relevant skills that could be useful, and that building a board of advisors and collaborators in your startup phase can be helpful not only in terms of uh, social support and moral support and specific skill sets, um, but also, you know, useful in terms of vetting investors and um, vetting business plans, and that one of the things I learned from this business incubation um, session I went to was that businesses that go through the process of building their kind of micro support team early are are best able to um, accommodate and and do well with uh, investment capital. Yeah, I would I would agree, and and it's you know my I, the the flip side to that is I've also learned over the years you don't give away all your best ideas, um, and when you put together that network, you know it's it's going to be a group of people that you're either naturally drawn to, you know that you've been connected with through your own network and that you trust, um, and and I and I don't I don't I don't like to to tie those two things together, but it's worth knowing. You know that over the years I have probably had uh, looser lips than I should have, and I can say from direct experience that I have seen things that I talked about doing or ideas that I had that I sh- sort of shared freely uh, show up on other people's shelves and become other people's methods for marketing. So it's it, I think when you start up new, you have to understand that you know what you're doing and you have a good idea and a clear goal for where you want to go. Um, most other people will not have that same sort of clarity about your vision. And so I guess I'll, I'll circle back around to the municipal side of things. Uh, even, even if you come up with the most perfect plan uh, that uh, has ticked off every box that is important on the list, and you leave the the local board with nothing to suggest, they will find something to suggest. That's kind of what they're there to do. So I would, uh, the classic example would be, you know, leave the painting um, slightly unfinished, but not in a, uh, in a major way, but so that someone can point out and say, hey, well, what about this here? And then you have the opportunity to respond back and say, that's a great idea. You know, thanks for pointing that out to us. It, it is definitely a dance, and there is a little bit of an art to it. But uh, I would say 
you know, don't always don't always come up with the most perfect plan because the job of most agencies is to hammer on it and to modify it in some way. Um, other than that, um, just uh, make sure that you have yeah you have that support network that you need. The support network. So, um, well, it's a question whether we want to talk more about startup farm businesses or whether we want to talk more about mead. It feels like. Mead is pretty compelling right now. I've been reading here on your wonderful Facebook page where it seems like you're like the mead hound of of the West. <laughs> well, you've been writing about how the Nordic peoples were using mead as a kind of an antibiotic. Oh yeah, there, you know, honey. I guess it goes for, for me. It really it starts with the bees and the honey. You know, honey's been used for a long time. There are a lot of medicinal qualities about it. And more and more that people sort of go back and rediscover, and this is what we're seeing in cider, cider apples, specific varieties being cultivated. You know, honey is much the same way. And it's for me, it's like I said, it's always been a, it's been a fun passion project. What I've tried to do over the years is give people information about it, so that the just the larger business of mead can grow. Um, and there have been, you know, some of the oldest mead makers, you know, I don't want to say the oldest, but some of the most established mead makers in North America now are, you know, about 20 years old. Uh, most of the most of the ones that uh, are out there now are probably five years or less. So it's it's definitely one of those areas that I've always felt has had space within the craft beverage market. And I think it's just going to continue to grow like cider and craft beer. When you get right down to it, people want to have a connection with their product. They want to feel like they're involved in some way. And bees and human beings have been interacting with each other. You know, I can, I can, uh, you can posit however you want, at least let's say a million years. You know, we, they were one of the first creatures that we figured out to follow and steal their food. So <laughs> we've been, We've been connected to them for a long time, and people have this sort of innate, I think there's something genetically about it, an innate fascination with bees and a connection to them. You know, they may be terrified of them, and I, I often sort of joke, you know, the bees are they're like your great aunt. Uh, everybody wants to know how they're doing. If, as soon as they find out that you're a beekeeper, if you know anything about bees or honey, well, how are those bees doing? You know, I heard they were having a tough time, you know, a couple of years ago. Are they still okay? You know, is the world going to end? Einstein says the world's going to end if, if all the bees are gone. But, which is great because from a popular culture perspective, bees are always in vogue. Uh, the reality is that bees can turn their gene pool over way quicker than we can. And it is sort of that uh, folly of humanity that we we like to believe that there are things that we can do that will upset the whole balance of nature. But nature is pretty resilient and pretty smart and pretty tough. Uh, the bees will continue to be around. And uh, they may not be all the same European bees that are so easy for us to handle, but they'll, there will be tough bees around uh, indefinitely. So, so, well, what else so one of the things I read on your on your blog was that the White House has got an initiative on Save the Bees, and apparently, yes. according to other environmental groups, um, it's it's kind of pathetic. I mean, one thing we've known is that the White House has has been 
you know, when they promoted their organic garden, they got super flack from the chemical and chemical for um, pesticide industry for promoting for promoting organic practices on the White House. And there was an interesting and kind of convoluted argument that if people didn't use chemicals, then the vegetables wouldn't grow, and people would get cancer from not eating vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, there, just. Hey. To, there's a lot of circular logic. The chemical gets, industry mindset. Yeah, and there's a lot of circular logic that gets utilized. I think in in both sides of marketing. You know, ultimately, when we if we're talking specifically about bees, it is uh, there are a lot of efforts that are being made to help find methods of what, however we want to call it, natural beekeeping. I w- I was always a, a natural beekeeper mostly because I'm fairly lazy. Uh, and it, it, is, it is different when you get into a commercial realm and you get uh, serious outbreaks of uh, varroa or you get uh, nosema or some of these other really nasty pests and, and What's viruses. What's the one called? The brood, um, brood black? The foul no. brood. Yeah, that one's, that one's very creepy. It's very alien-like where they impregnate the... the uh, the brood of the bees with the mite that grows inside them and kills them. So they've, they're open, you know, they're open to a lot of different, I would say, uh, my science would say a multivariate set of external pressures, but the bees do figure out a way to handle it. it where you really come into the issue is when you try to keep, when your business is about keeping 10,000 hives of bees healthy. Uh, it's just like trying to keep 10,000 head of cattle healthy. Uh, you have you have to look at different methodologies in order to make that system work. And you know, from one end to the other, the colony collapse disorder is something that has been, you know, comes around every few years, and it is something that the industry has continued to manage over the years. But it's still something that's not completely diagnosed. So it's with the bees it often comes back to unless you can specifically target you can target like here I had a mite infection, you know, or here I had some sort of obvious, you know, poison that got that got on the bees. It becomes really hard to determine what may have affected the colony in that way. So it, I would like to I would like to think that at a certain point the large scale beekeeping operations you know, can make the accommodation to be more natural. It's the tough part for them is going to be that most of their businesses is not driven by the production of honey. It's driven by the pollination of big crops like almonds. So it's so we in start our getting, vision of a more regional, more diverse, more prosperous, more fun food system, which is the kind of green. That's the kind of greenhorns uh, question. What is the role and scale of mead making? in that system, and, and what is the logic that you see expressed in all of these new mead businesses? I guess, like, I guess just to make sure there's a template to the question, like, where's the honey coming from that these small mead companies are coming from, and, and how are they, um, you know, how are they, what is the cost differential for a more regional honey or a more chemical-free honey versus commodity honey? Um, like there is there is a difference, drum. and there is a there is a there is a straight up difference on the price per pound that they pay. But most of these companies that are developing again are developing around the concept of 
a local product and a product that they want to be able to promote being from the area. So a lot of regional beekeepers will sell to smaller meaderies. Uh, in British Columbia, where I live right now, is the rules are slightly different. You actually have to own a minimum of 50 hives of bees in order to get a license to make mead. I'm not a huge fan of that kind of regulation because it, the the intent is that it has it, the idea that the the BC government has is that that will give uh, producers of honey another avenue for value add. But in Michigan, uh, you can buy honey uh, on the open market from anyone you want to, as long as you have a winemaking license and produce mead with it. So, in the context of those. Uh, states that don't require or those places that don't require any bees to be kept. What I've noticed is that the people that get into that business want to support their local farmers and want to have a connection with their local beekeepers. And that's one of the the key aspects of their business. So you got to be hooked up with the right people that can provide your product. And that uh, is one of the ways that you can do that. Find a good local supplier and that is generally what has been done. There's not a big commercial push right now. You don't see AB InBev or Miller SAB, you know, making a mead. Um, when you do, that will probably be made with some sort of doctored Gnarly imported Chinese syrup, Chinese or Malaysian honey. Uh, yeah, and and the, you know that gets into the whole aspect of honey laundering, which is a great it's a great term, <laughs> but. Uh, again, living here in Canada, the transshipment thing is real. Um, honey wait a minute, is a commodity. Wait a minute. Let's let's talk about this. What do you mean the transshipment thing is real? So people ship honey to Canada and then repack it as Canadian honey. Absolutely. Uh, it, sometimes and the honey will honey make probably. Uh, sorry. And probably not just honey. Probably not just honey, but honey is one of the things that has you know that has been identified and, and transshipment from uh, well generally where it comes from is Asia and, and most people will peg China as the culprit, but but it's uh, you know Malaysia is another one, uh, Vietnam is another, and so what will happen is uh, Chinese honey may move through Vietnam and then uh, down into Australia and then up into Canada before it comes to the United States and. At that point, it could maybe be Australian honey. It could maybe be Canadian honey. It could basically be honey that doesn't have import duty on it from specifically China. So what it is is it's a shell game that's played around the import duties. And that's, you know, I don't know how they're going to stop that because there's money to be made in it. And there's a market, there's a clear market in the U.S. for more honey. Uh, but there, what the government intent here is with the import duties is to try to protect the producers in the U.S. Um, and what they're really protecting there is they feel like they're protecting that commodity market. Um, when most beekeepers would tell you they'd much rather sell regionally because they make a lot more money that way. But well, at the end of the day, if you... Let's talk a little bit about the commodity versus regional dollars. Mm -hmm. So... From a commodity perspective, and this is what happens, if you have a successful year and you have, uh, let's say, 2,000 hives and you've got uh, 100, 100 barrels of honey to sell, um, if you have a really good program 
you know, a little farm market, some decent distribution regionally, a few people that use your products in various uh, bakeries, et cetera, restaurants, you know, you may, you may be able to move a third of that uh, into your regional market. Uh, then that leaves you with another 60 barrels of honey uh, that basically go on to the truck and you get paid for those all at once. And that's pretty nice from a business perspective. You don't have to hold the product as inventory. You don't have to do the marketing. You don't have to do it's the extra packaging. Like shipping cattle. Yeah, yeah. And, you, and you, let's you, talk you, about the, the the like kind of price range for those. So when you're doing a bulk, a bulk honey on any, let's just say like maybe a three year average here, you're talking about two dollars per pound for that honey. So you can you can look at the little bear at the farmer market that costs four fifty or five dollars and is twelve ounces and and see oh wow that's you can make a lot more money you can make twice as much money selling this bear at the farmer market and you can the the issue is you just can't sell everything through that channel um, and to have the size operation that you need just from a, a standalone apiary business. Um, you're going to end up having to sell some of that wholesale. If you have a business where bees are part of the business, um, you're much more likely to be able to capture that high margin. But when you get into the the size of the 2,000 hive apiary, you, you will need to be selling wholesale. It's a, you're saying you know, that honey that's kind just, of a threshold in terms of full-time apiary. Yeah. And, and you know, there are, the big, big ones are 10,000-plus hives. Uh, and mostly what they're doing all the time is just building more bees. They don't make a lot of honey just because they spend a lot of time trying to make bees. But it is, you know, it is a, it is a line where you can be a small operation, uh, work regionally with, uh, you know, 150 or 200 hives and uh, have some other products that you're working with, make that part of your mix and be successful. But then there's, it's like anything, once you grow to a certain size, it's, you don't just switch from one to the other. Then there's a whole other infrastructure that you need to implement in order to do the, that scale of business. So when you go, when you start getting, you know, close to 800 or 1,000 hives of bees, it just becomes a much bigger, it's just a much bigger operation. Well, I have one more kind of grounding question before we get into our concluding remarks. Um, I've just learned how many um, coffee beans it takes to make a cup of coffee. And um, it's, I think, 18 grams. And I met in a, a nice coffee man measured it out for me and showed it to me, and I put it in my hands. And, you know, each of those coffee beans is picked by hand. And it's an incredible amount of work that goes into a cup of coffee, which is so incredibly cheap um, relative to the work that went in by smallholders and shippers and sorters and fermenters and Everybody, uh, most of whom are paid very little, but but bees are paid nothing at all. And I wanted to know if you knew, doesn't it take something like 10,000 visits to a flower? Can you tell me how many, can you tell us more about how honey is made and what it takes? Yeah. Um, yeah, those are, it's tricky. It, you know, it depends on how sweet the flower is and what they're visiting. But typically, you've got close to 50,000 bees that live in a hive together. And on a good, uh, on a good summer uh, with uh, good rain, bees are very susceptible to drought. 
because uh, they need to eat uh, nectar and pollen, and that all comes from flowers. So uh, if you got good weather and you have 50,000 bees working all summer, let's say, for about the span of a normal worker's life of 90 to 120 days, um, though that 50, 000, those 50,000 bees could produce uh, 50, maybe even 80 pounds of honey uh, and if they're in a very productive area. Uh, the bees are, are happy to do it, and when generally when the commercial when commercially when you harvest the honey from the hives, you'd you'd have to replace that with some other food. And sugar water is much cheaper uh, than honey is. So typically, in a big commercial operation, after the honey extraction happens. Uh, some of the honey gets left in the hive, but then there's supplemental feeding. You'll, sometimes you'll see a, a clear jar on top of a beehive, and that's that's basically sugar water that the bees are happy to eat. The bees are like people. They, um, they don't go any further than they have to. Um, they're not particularly picky. Uh, there was a, a great, uh, I don't, don't want to say great, but a very interesting article in the New York Times, this is probably four or five years ago now, where there was a Marchino cherry finishing business in Brooklyn, and some local bees that were on top of a, some urban beekeepers had some bees on top of a building about a mile away, and they were completely freaked out when they pulled out the, they pulled, they pulled the honey out of the hive, and the whole frame was red, blood red. And it wasn't filled with golden, beautiful honey. It was blood red, and they poked it open, and it was this gooey red syrup. And so, of course, they figured out that what the bees were doing was the bees were flying down to the Marchino cherry finishing plant, uh, sucking up the red dye number five and the sugar slurry, flying right back and packing it away for later use. <laughs> so... Um, and it was, you know, it was very surprising. Oh, this is horrible for the bees, and it made me chuckle a little bit because the bees have a lot more work to do um, when they convert uh, the nectar and the pollen into honey. That's a natural process that happens with them. Um, but they can eat uh, straight sugars or invert sugars pretty much directly. So um, I remember somebody saying, "Oh, this is terrible," and I said, "I don't know. If I was a bee, I'd think I had it easy." Like uh, today, you know, I just have to go. <laughs> Granted, it's like fast food, um, but it didn't hurt the bees. And bees are opportunists. Well, so there's, they you know, there's a lot, there's a whole lot of philosophical implications in what we're saying here. And, you know, John Smith and John Ruskin would probably have disagreement around the motivation of the bee and duty and honor and power and the theory of humanity. But um, let's wrap it up without getting into the controversies. Of our um, of how we understand the society of bees, um, what kind of services do you offer, and where else do you recommend young entrepreneurs go? Well, you had mentioned it earlier, and uh, in most places you can find a retired executive network. A score is one that is pretty active, and I would recommend looking at that. You know, when you're when you're thinking about reading. Uh, and, you know, I, I have always been uh, more interested in social theory, so I like, uh, I like Durkheim, and I like to read him, uh, mainly because it gives me insight into um, how people think. 
And, you know, really when it comes to agriculture, it is the future of our planet. It's the way that we're going to feed each other and feed ourselves. So I think that knowing something about social history and social relations is really important in agriculture. Um, You can, uh, and business experience and education as well. You can cover up a lot of uh, business issues by being a good farmer. (laughs) And so I think it's always important that uh, to check yourself and your own personal development and look at what it is, you know, what it is that you really feel like you need more help with and either take it upon yourself. A lot of times we don't have the time to take it upon ourselves, but, uh, you know, to get just to, to find those people and you can find them within your networks, within your social networks, within your professional networks. I, and, and I would encourage everyone, you may not know it at the time, uh, and and I talk a lot and I work with people on mentoring, you may not understand or specifically have said, wow, I, I want you to be my mentor, but it's usually something that happens in hindsight where you, you feel like, uh, wow, I really learned a lot from that person and more than I probably understood at that moment. And that's really, that's an intrinsic, that's intrinsic within the individual, um, the people that you're drawn to, the ideas that you want to continue to see develop in the world that's really that's really where you should be focused and on your passion i'm uh you know i'm a big believer that the future is going to be a good one for us and that we have it we have the capacity within ourselves we've got a lot that has to be sorted out within the ag world and within the sustainability of how we make our food but I have a really positive view of that, and I feel like we've got a, a whole ge- another generation. I wouldn't say just a whole generation, but a whole another generation of people that understand that. And we have made those kind of strides in society, and that's why that's one of the main reasons I'm really, really positive and high on agriculture. High on agriculture. Here you are. It's been another episode of Greenhorns Radio, and I will just share a statistic I learned today or yesterday, um, which is there are more people alive today on Earth than have ever died on Earth. So if anyone ever just happens to say something kind of casual like, it's always been confusing and strange on planet Earth, you could say, maybe so, but I have a new piece of data for you. Um, Thank you so much for joining, Nels, and um, happy summer to you. Thanks, Severine. I really appreciate it, and uh, good luck out there, everybody. Just stay safe. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Still my love for you.